Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. This is God's word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. James 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James, the brother of our Lord, is convinced that not all faith is the kind that saves. Think if James could come back and visit all the churches in America today. And he would hear them, some of them reciting the Apostles' Creed, I believe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He would hear them praying, some of these churches, the the Lord's Prayer, calling upon God as our Father in heaven. He would hear them singing the hymns of faith that profess Christ as their Savior, listening to sermons from God's Word. And then he would follow each one home for a month and just watch how they live and see how things go at the home, how children speak to each other how they speak to their parents, how they speak about their parents when they're at school, what happens in private, what happens at work, what happens in recreation. And he he follows each one throughout the day, throughout the month, watches how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you do with the Bible, what you do with prayer, with the commands of God, with your sins. I think he would be amazed at the numbers of people who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but do not have a life that in any way backs up that claim. Claims to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, but do not have a life that Monday through Sunday is obeying the words of Christ. Believing the teachings and obeying the teachings of Christ. I think he would return to those churches and ask, has everyone stopped or have, have, have you stopped reading the Bible? Is anyone reading my letter? Because his letter speaks specifically to this very thing about people who claim to have faith in Christ, but whose lives deny it. They don't have the deeds to show it. Well, James believes as much as the Apostle Paul that salvation is by faith alone. More on that perhaps next week. But James is concerned to show that the only kind of faith that does save us is the kind that works. It's a faith that does not remain all by itself, but it goes on to produce the good deeds of a holy life. James would stand in every pulpit in America and say, don't be deceived, my friends. Don't be tricked. No one has ever been saved by a faith that does not produce a holy life. Now, that's his thesis. And he starts off and introduces this whole discussion from verse 
14 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter with a question that's both very practical and very important. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And he's answered his own question already as in what we saw last week with a resounding no. Such faith is dead. In fact, it's like the demons and it's useless It's good for nothing. It will not and cannot save you. So the question that James is making us ask ourselves is not, do I have faith? Do I claim to have faith? But rather, do I have the kind of faith that saves? We must be sure that we've got the right kind. Now, how can I know that? Since, after all, faith is invisible. And we gave the illustration last week. Well, the wind is invisible, too. You can't see the wind, but you can surely see the effects. Our team went down to to Lakeshore, Mississippi yesterday. And as they're waking up this morning to the, the, the light, they are still able to see what the wind did. They'll see trees that have been topped. And they'll see the, the, the wreckage is, that, that's even yet left from what the wind did. Though no one ever saw the wind that we call Katrina. So it is with faith. You don't see saving faith, but you always see what it produces. It always produces holiness, deeds of love and obedience to God's law. So James gave us two examples of dead faith. We looked at them last week. We'll look at two examples of living faith. The two examples of dead faith were that armchair philanthropist who just talks about how How much he loves you and how much he wishes you well. But though you have no food and no clothes, he does nothing about your physical need. And James' question is, what good is it? Is that saving faith? Absolutely not. But there are other people who might say, well, I I have a very orthodox faith. I believe all the right doctrines. And James says, gives us the example, secondly, of the demon's faith. They, too, are monotheists. They, too, believe that there's one God. They, too, believe that Jesus is God's son and that a day of judgment is coming and only those who are found in Christ will be saved. They believe Jesus died on the cross. All these things. But is it saving faith? No. So those were the two examples of dead faith. And he's still talking to the man claiming to have faith, but who has no deeds to back it up. And he says in verse 20, You foolish man. The word there is for empty. Your your claim is more full of air than it is of any substance. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Do you really want to know? You see, here's the difference in here. Some people just ask questions just to, to argue. And then there's other people who ask questions because they want to know. And James is putting it to him. Do do you really want to know? Because if you do, there's plenty of evidence. No shortage on evidence and proof. And he now brings as his evidence two examples of living faith, Abraham and Rahab. And in both, he's going to show us that saving faith always goes on to produce good deeds of holiness. Now, It's only fitting if James is going to talk about faith that he should talk about the father of the faithful. 
that would be Abraham. And that's really the translation or the, the word used here is was not our verse 21 was not our ancestor Abraham or our father Abraham. And you see, Abraham is not only the father of ethnic Israel. It's not only that all Jews trace their physical lineage back to their father, their ancestor, Abraham. But it's also true that Abraham is the father of all who believe, Jew or Gentile. Galatians 3 and verse 7, those who believe are children of Abraham. So if he's going to talk about faith, he's going to talk about the father of believers, Abraham. And notice what he says about him in verse 21 through 23. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see then, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham lived a long life full of all sorts of events. And James just selects two. Two events in the life of Abraham that will demonstrate to us his faith. The first is Genesis 15. You might want to hold your place here and turn back to Genesis 15. He's going to quote from this very chapter uh, Later, James, uh, he, James does quote there in verse 23 that we just read. He's going to quote, he quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6. So let's look at this, uh, this event. Genesis 15, Abraham's about 75 years old. Remember how God had called him to leave his country and to go to a land that he would show him. God would show him. Abram obeyed and went, not knowing where he was going, just that God says he'll lead me to a land that he would give to me and my descendants. And God also promised that he would make him the father of a great nation, that he would have many descendants. So that's the promise. Now, the name Abram means exalted father. But there was a problem, though. He was no father because he had no children. And. He and Sarah, his wife, were not getting any younger. She was barren. And so get the picture. Here's Abraham and Sarah, perhaps his servants, his flocks, and they're traveling. And along the path, uh, they meet up with many other strangers who stop and say, hello, I'm so-and-so, Mephibosheth. Uh, who are you? Well, I'm Abraham. Oh, exalted father, how many children do you have? Oh, I don't have any yet. Oh, you don't. Well, where are you going? Oh, I don't know, but God is leading me. Here's a man who's living by faith, you see, Abraham. And he doesn't have one child, much less many descendants. Later on, his name will be changed to Abraham which means father of many. And that would only make introductions even more embarrassing. Okay, so the father of many is really the father of none. So his faith was on trial all the time. He is a man of faith that's held out as the example for us. Now here in, G in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, 
Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, "Okay, God, you're going to reward me. Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. Whatever you give to me, Lord, is an inheritance. I'm going to have to pass on to someone that's not really my son. I'll just claim my servant for my heir. You have given me no children, he says, so a servant in my household will be my heir. The Lord responded, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And it was nighttime, and so the Lord took him out under the stars. And he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. Think of that verse the next time you're out at night and it's a clear night and you're looking up at the stars. Remember Abraham with the Lord saying, so shall your offspring be. Now, that shows us that though Abraham is getting older and Sarah is getting older and is still bearing, uh, still barren, God is not backing down from his promise. Your offspring will be as countless as the stars. And his response is found in verse six. Abram believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, we're going to see how James makes use of this verse, quoting it in his letter. But notice here how this verse speaks of Abram's faith. He believed the Lord. You say, what about his deeds? Because James is talking all about Abram's deeds. Well, there are no deeds here under the stars that night. There was nothing to do but to believe. There was no command given here. Just a promise. You will have descendants as many as the stars in heaven. Would he or wouldn't he take God at his word? That's the issue. Nothing more. And the response was, Abram, believe the Lord. He, he believed God is no liar, that he would keep his promise. And the Lord was so pleased that he counted it to him. He credited it to him as righteousness. Paul says about Abram that he did not waver through unbelief. Romans 4. But... He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, saving faith at its inception is like this scene with Abram underneath the starry vault. Sinner friend, you stand under the the. The vault of God's promises, and they're all shining down upon you. And God's promising you not children, but salvation. That's the picture. Christ has lived. Christ has lived the perfect life we couldn't. He's died the atoning death in our place. He has been raised from the dead. He's exalted at the right hand, and he will save anyone who comes to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to each star of promise as it speaks to you. Come to me and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but will have eternal life. You see, 
The promises are saying, Jesus is willing to save you. He is willing to save you. He is willing, doubt no more. Are you willing to have him? Will you believe that he's willing to have you? There's nothing to do at this moment but to believe the promise that he's making. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to change your ways. That will come later. But here and now, standing under the promise of the gospel, there is nothing for you to do but to believe him, to entrust the entirety of yourself into his hands, to say, here I am, Lord, save me, to fall into his hands. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake. You promised you'd save all who come to you through him. I come. I believe. That's saving faith. And wherever God sees it, he credits the righteousness of his own perfect son to their account. But now this same faith, if it's the real thing, will not remain alone. It was alone that night under the the stars. And I'm not suggesting that Abram never believed before then. I'm simply saying that that night there was nothing to do but to believe. But if it's real faith that believes when there's nothing but the naked promise, that faith will go on to produce A holy life of obedience. And that's what we see in the life of Abram. And that's what James is so encouraged about his example. It's undeniable. There were many deeds of faith that Abram did. He could have selected so many of them. Instead, he goes to perhaps the greatest demonstration of his faith in deeds. And that's Genesis 22, the passage that was read for us. We fast forward 30 to 40 years after believing God under that starry night. Isaac, the son of promise, has been born. He's grown up. And Abraham is looking to see the promises fulfilled in his son Isaac, as God has said. It's through him that he will truly become Abraham, the father of many. And verse 1 says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. In other words, he's going to test his faith. You stood underneath the stars and said, you believe, I believe. Now he's going to test that faith. He's going to prove it to see what kind it is. So he says, Abraham, father of many, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, we're in a different setting. There is now something for faith to do. There's a command to obey, isn't there? And what a command it is. Sacrifice your one and only son that you love. So faith is no longer just believing the promises. Faith is now in the presence of a commandment, also obeying. And so early the next morning, Abram's up and he's off and he goes to the place he was told to go and led to go by God. And he puts the wood on the altar that he makes and ties his son to the altar and raises the knife to bring it down. And God stops his hand. The angel saying, that's it, Abram, Abram, stop, don't do any harm to the boy. Now I know that you fear me. 
And so the ram was sacrificed in his place. And Abraham was told, because you've done this, not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, because you have obeyed me. Now, this is quite an amazing feat of obedience. This is a James is talking about deeds, good deeds, deeds of obedience. What a deed this was, a deed of all deeds. And he says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Last week we saw in verse 17 of James 2 that faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by deeds and actions, is useless. Abraham's faith was alone under the starry night, but it went on and worked together with his deeds and his actions. As God gave commandments, he, by faith, obeyed them. And faith was made complete by what it did, by what he did. In other words, faith is incomplete until it leads you to obey God, until it leads you to that end goal that faith leads to the deeds of obedience. So James is telling us as we turn back to James uh, words to us, he's telling us that what you just read in Genesis 22 is simply Abraham's faith in action. Faith and actions working together. This amazing deed of obedience is the product of faith. Just turn a page or two forward in your Bible to Hebrews 11. And notice again the, the commentary on this, the New Testament commentary on this deed that Abraham did. Hebrews 11 verses 7 through 19. <clears throat> By faith, those first two words are all important. You find them. Twenty uh, some times in this chapter by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring, your descendants will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. From the dead. This passage again tells us that faith was the driving force behind what he did. Take away faith, and he never would have done this in a million years. But add faith, and it produced the power to enable Abraham to sacrifice his son. Even though he knew that this was the son of promise through whom he would have many descendants. So Abraham stands before the promise and before the command of God. And what does faith do? Faith believes and obeys. Faith says, the God who promised to give me an offspring through this son, Isaac, has the power. If I if he tells me to kill him, he has the power then to raise him from the dead. And by the way, he was going to burn him 
to ashes. That's what he was told to do, to offer him as a burnt offering, hence the wood. After he killed him, he would burn him to absolutely ashes. But he believed that God was able to raise him from ashes back to life, human health, and that from his loins would come a son and sons and many sons and descendants that would one day be like the stars of heaven. Do you see his faith? You must. That's the, that's the thing that Hebrews 11 is highlighting in this whole story. It was by faith that Abraham offered his son. And so we ask, I think this is probably one of the hardest commandments I, that have ever been given to a man to obey. And we would say, what's strong enough to enable Abraham to sacrifice his son? What is strong enough to overcome his own affection for his one and only son? The answer is faith. By faith, he offered him to God. And brothers and sisters, faith is strong enough to enable you to obey any command that God gives you. Faith is powerful stuff. Faith moves mountains. Faith walks on water. Faith overcomes the world. Faith kills sin. Faith sacrifices sons. Faith enables us to obey. And it causes us to do things that we otherwise never could do or ever would do. Do you realize faith will enable you to consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds? You never would do that. But because of faith, you do. Faith enables you to persevere under trial and to keep going. Faith enables you to say no to temptation. It's faith that gives the power to keep a tight rein on your tongue, James says, to love others as ourselves, to feed and clothe the hungry and the poor. It's faith that enables us to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. It's faith that will move us to obey all the commandments of God, no matter how costly they are to us. The power of faith. Do you remember when we came to chapter two of James that we noted that the whole theme of James is to urge us to live a holy life? And in chapter two, he tells us, what a holy life looks like will be found in the, the law of God. The law of God defines the holy life, whether it's summarized in the Ten Commandments or summarized even further in the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the holiness that James is urging us to. And we said the law is like the tracks, the railroad tracks of a holy life. But faith is the engine that drives us down that track. Faith is the driving force. It's the dynamic, the power the, that leads us to holy living. So faith is not something dead. That's what James is saying. It's a living, dynamic principle that actually moves us to live holy lives. It's so powerful that we'll do things that we otherwise never would do. So I must ask you, what is there about your life that can only be explained by a living faith. You would never do that 
if you did not have faith. I believe that many of you have already done something this morning that you never would do. That when you walk by the the offering box, some of you put your hard-earned money in economic tough times into that box. And you didn't do it grudgingly. You didn't do it of necessity. You did it cheerfully and even sacrificially, giving up some things that you could have bought for yourselves. Now, what caused you to do such a deed as that? Well, you have faith. You believe that there is a God and you count money given to him and his cause and his kingdom, not as money down the tubes, but as the best spent money of all the expenditures that you've had this month. It moves you. Faith moves you to see a whole nother world. That you lay up treasures for that world. It's all done because of faith that, that sees God for who he is. And what he said and what he's done. And so you live differently. Faith sees something that powerfully compels us to no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died and rose again. What else does faith move us to do that we otherwise wouldn't do. Well, some of you, faith is enabling you to endure such affliction that many here know nothing about. And you're doing it not complaining, but joyfully embracing your situation as God's assignment for you in this life to bring glory to him, to draw attention to him. How does that woman, how does that man go on with joy and peace and love in their hearts with a good word for their God? When their life is so hard. Oh, what a God she must serve. How great he must be that he is able to fill her cup of joy in the midst of such trials. What causes you to to persevere in your trial? It's faith. This is the central piece in James' letter. He's showing us the power of faith. With you, it's not a son. That you're to take the knife to. But some cherished sin. You're to put it to death. You're to kill it. You're to drain the lifeblood out of it. You're not to make any provision for it. And faith is enabling some of you to cut off right hands. Things as precious as your right hand. Things as precious as your right foot. Plucking out things as precious as your right eye. Faith. The power of faith. Bringing the knife to discrimination, favoritism, such as he speaks of here in chapter 2. Selfishness, pride, lust, revenge, anger, lack of self-control. Yes, James is laying before us the power of faith. And he would tell us it is powerful because it lays hold of the God of omnipotence who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So this command was a test of Abraham's faith, wasn't it? Have you thought about that in terms of God's commandments for you? That every command is a test of your faith. It's it's going to show us what kind of faith does he have. He claims to have faith, but the commands will test that faith and will give you opportunity to prove its genuineness. Do you have the kind of faith that... Produces good deeds. 
that obeys because of what your faith sees in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? Or do you have a faith that picks and chooses what you will obey and what you won't? And so ends up being a breaker of the whole law, James 2.10. No, saving faith enables you to obey all God's commandments, even the hardest ones. Was not Abraham our father the example of that? James would tell us that faith not only receives Christ's righteousness to our account in heaven, and that is true. Paul emphasizes that in his letter to the Romans, that, that faith brings the righteousness of Jesus to my account in heaven. How am I saved? It's not by my deeds. It's by the deeds of Jesus received by faith such that his righteousness is put to my account. But faith not only receives Christ's righteousness to our account, faith also receives Christ's sanctifying power to my heart and life. It's faith that looks away to Jesus and finds grace and strength in him to live a holy life. Oh, the power of faith. But should we expect anything different? Living faith unites us to who? To a living Christ. Like a branch is united to a vine. Well, friends, the vine we're united to, the vine that we are grafted into is none other than the, the living Almighty Lord Jesus Christ. Would you not expect a branch that's plugged into him to be bearing good fruit? Of course. And that's why James can say wherever there's true faith in Jesus Christ, there will be good fruit, good deeds. Why? Because faith unites us to Christ and draws from him all the sap of grace and power to live a holy life. By looking to him, by leaning upon him, that's faith. We then produce the deeds of faith. So don't think of salvation. Here's salvation. What does it take to be saved? Don't think, well, it takes faith. I understand that. But then you've got to add to faith. Faith's not enough. So you've got to add to faith your works, your deeds. And that equals salvation. Faith plus my deeds equals salvation. No, that's, that's not what James is saying. James is saying faith. In Christ equals salvation. But it's got to be the right kind of faith. Okay, it can't be phony faith, can't be dead faith, can't be just professed faith. It's got to be the real thing. And the way you know it's the real thing is that it's a life, holy life producing faith. So those Jews that didn't believe in Jesus and they came claiming that Abraham was their father. Remember John 8? Abraham is our father. Jesus was inferring that Satan, and he will tell them, no, the devil is your father. But they said, no, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the deeds Abraham did. You're trying to kill me. Abraham wouldn't have done that. Abraham held nothing back from God. He obeyed no matter the cost. You can't claim Abraham as your father unless you walk in the steps of your father, Abraham. <clears throat> and so James tells us in verse 23, and so the scripture was fulfilled. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see what faith does? Faith credits to our account 
righteousness. And the New Testament reveals that that righteousness is none other than the perfect life of Jesus. His straight A report card. He always obeyed. And that report card is put on my account. His grades on my report card. Credited to me. Yes. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Faith also brings me into a restored relationship with God. By sin, I became God's enemy. By faith in Jesus, I am restored to becoming God's friend. God's friend. Say, wonderful thing to have good friends. Wonderful thing to have God as a friend. But that's not what James is saying. James is saying God considers you his friend. It's not saying that you consider God your friend. This is something even better. Wonderful to have God call me friend. Faith in Jesus brings you right into that relationship where God considers you as his friend. So when you read your Bibles, you're reading the love letters of your friend. You're reading the promises of your friend. The one who counts you as his friend and he's revealing his heart to his friend. That was Abraham. And that's anyone who has faith in Jesus. Now, this verse 23, the scripture that was fulfilled is not a verse that's found in Genesis 22 when Abram offered his son Isaac on the altar. No, it's a verse that's found back in chapter 15 when there was nothing to do but to believe that he would have an offspring like the stars. Do you see what James is saying? James is saying the faith that you see in his deeds of offering his son Isaac is the faith that he had before. It's the same faith that he had when he stood under the stars and believed, and it was credited to him then as righteousness. And now this event of offering his son is just another sign of the faith that he's had For these many years. Same faith. In the one situation when there was nothing but a promise, faith believing. Now in this situation, in the face of a a command, it's faith obeying. But the same faith. Because it's not a faith that's alone. It comes to verse 24 and says, what's true of Abraham is true universally. He makes a general principle. It works the same way for everyone. Verse 24, you see that that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Don't think this was a special option for Abram. No, this this is the way it is for anyone who becomes of God's friend, uh, who becomes justified right with God, who gets righteousness, a righteous standing before God. You see that a person is justified by what he does. And not by faith alone, not by a faith that remains alone, because that faith cannot justify anyone. John Calvin put it this way, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And that's the point James is making here. Justifying faith is always accompanied by deeds A person is justified by a doing faith, not an alone faith, by a living faith, not a dead one, by a productive faith, not a useless one. 
And so, though deeds are not the ground of our justification, it's not the reason we are justified, it is nevertheless the absolute proof that we are justified. I think rather than taking the second example, we'll leave it for next week. It goes from Abram to Rahab the prostitute. Wonderful lessons for drawing upon that example to prove the same point. Rather than to get involved in the way that she demonstrated her her faith, uh, let me just conclude and draw together what we've seen this morning. What is it that James is very much in earnest about to say to us? He's saying, don't ever think that you'll be saved by a faith that doesn't lead to a holy life. Abraham, our father, our ancestor, was not justified by that kind of a faith. And neither was Rahab, the prostitute. So maybe you've got that kind of faith that comes to church and professes, I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. What a friend we have in Jesus. But if James or anyone else followed you around for a month, they would say, I don't see anything of this Jesus ruling in their life and, and directing the way they live and their heart's affections. And I don't see it changing the way they deal with their sins. They're not killing them and they're not confessing them. They're not forsaking them. They're just excusing them. They're just going on about them. James would let us know there is no salvation except by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's a faith that always works. But there's something more here, and it's the kernel right in the center of that. James is telling us something about saving faith that we need to get a hold of. He's telling us how powerful it is. It's, it's such a powerful thing that it'll, it'll not let you live the same way. If you really see this God who speaks in his word for who he is, you won't be the same. You, you can't live the same way. And the hardest commands that God gives you in his word, you'll obey. Because this faith is the driving force to move you. Do you see, again, it's not like James is saying, well, Jesus must do some and you must do another part if you would be saved. No, even the faith that we're talking about, even these good deeds that James is talking about are are produced by faith in Christ. Faith is such a powerful thing that it lays hold of this omnipotent Savior who pours out his grace in our lives. It's his grace flowing in us, producing these good deeds. So, dear believers, do you see it? Our sins are failures of faith. When we sin, it's a failure of faith. It's unbelief at the bottom. All of our victories are triumphs of faith. It was faith that moved Abraham to offer his son. If you'd like a good read, turn to to Hebrews 11 and see what else faith moved people to do. You'll see a man building a boat with no water in sight. You'll say, wow, what is the power of faith? And you'll see a prostitute in Jericho welcoming spies from the enemy. Wow, risking her life. What is the power of faith? And you must know that that is the same power that is enabling you to persevere in suffering 
So we need our faith strengthened. Where do we go to get faith strengthened? Well, we look at Christ. He's the object of faith, and it's from him that faith grows. We look at his word, what he said to us, what he's promised us, what he said about himself. And faith grows. This powerful principle will enable you to these deeds of faith. So whatever the the trial, look away to Christ by faith. And you'll find all the power you need to persevere under it. Whatever the command, faith in Christ is such a powerful thing that it will enable you to be faithful even unto death. So God has spoken to us this morning about faith, a faith that works. Now he's, re- he's waiting for our response. And so let's go to him in prayer. Each one of you silently. Respond. He's he said something to you this morning in his word. You respond to him as we pray. And then I'll conclude as we've had an opportunity to express our hearts to God. Let's all pray silently. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, it exposes us. It, it, it shows us what we are. It doesn't let us play games with you. And if some here this morning have seen that they have a dead faith, Keep them, Lord, from thinking that they need to add to their dead faith some works. Rather, show them and lead them to Christ for a living faith that will itself produce these works. Works that show that indeed we have the real thing. And our Father, we thank you for showing us the power of faith. We thank you that there is such an object of faith to move us when we see him, when we lean upon him, that we become different people. Oh, help us then to fix our eyes on Jesus and to become people who, whose lives are, are littered and cluttered with all kinds of, of fruits, the very likeness of our Lord Jesus. We ask it for his praise. Amen.